my dad, Uncle Steve, told me, Sarah, to tell you that the show is starting. Right now. I'm gonna listen up you now, you won't get away from my grave. All right, welcome to episode 70 of Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone. I have got a very, very special treat for you today. Because today, March 22nd, 2021, I had the privilege of interviewing former Iron Maiden guitarist Dennis Stratton. And we got into a lot of things. We were all over the map in Dennis's career. He told some stories that I personally have never heard before, and if I haven't heard them, that doesn't mean they've never been heard, but maybe it's been a long time since some of those have been heard. Wait until you hear some of these things that Dennis told me. I was blown away, and I know that you will be too. All right, you know what that means. It's time to thank those that shared last week's show, Iron Maiden Covers Part 1. Now, you know who you are, but I'm going to tell everybody anyway. First off, we have Reggie Oz in Melbourne, Australia, the Liverpool Scousers, Stephanie Jane Grey and Don McIntyre, Kirsty Prince in Perth, Australia, the man of many nicknames, Lord Andrew of Sussex, better known as The Weekend Warrior, but he's been known longer as Georgie's dad and even longer as Sonia's husband. Also, the Kiwi across the ditch from Andrew, James Fraser in New Zealand, and last but not least, the Sassanac in Scotland, my buddy Andy. Now you might be wondering, well Steve, you're usually starting your show playing Dr. Doctor. Why are you not playing Dr. Doctor right now? Well, when you interview a guy that played on the first Iron Maiden album and you ask him, hey, what songs would you like me to play? And this is while I was doing the radio. What songs would you like me to play on the radio show for an intro, for an outro, and for something that comes out of the break? And he tells you certain songs like, say he says, I want to open with Phantom of the Opera. Then that's just what you play. (laughs) All right. I have an incredible interview that is coming your way very, very shortly. So brace yourselves because this is freaking awesome.
All right. This is Uncle Steve, and you are listening to Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone. Straight away, I'm going to get into this interview I've got. If you are an Iron Maiden fan, you will know this man's voice. You will be excited to hear from him just like I am right now. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Dennis Stratton. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well. Very well. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you so much again. I know I've already told you five times, but thank you so much for coming on. So I want to get, I've got, like I told you before, I've got a lot of questions and I want to just, we'll go straight into this. So first question I have for you is uh, before you were playing guitar, before you were singing, who would you say was the biggest influence to get you into playing guitar singing? And especially with harmonies, because you are a huge harmony guy. Yeah. Um, but it has to be the Beatles. Um, I remember, um, my my grandparents, I used to stay with my grandparents a lot when I was about six, and uh, I used to play a tennis racket because I didn't <laughs> know, you know, I knew I could see a guitar, but my granddad was a big lover of Lonnie Donegan, and um, there was a song that he used to play all the time called Cumberland Gap, and I remember my grandparents telling me that I used to stand in front of the radiogram with the tennis racket singing <laughs> You know, Cumberland Gap, Cumberland Gap, 15 doubts, Cumberland Gap. But that was like when I was about six or seven. Yeah. But as I started sort of like uh, school, got to about 11, 9, 10, 11, I was always listening to the Beatles. Okay. So that was the, the first love of them harmonies and rhythm guitar. Okay. Okay. Um, how old were you when you actually started playing guitar? Um, I didn't start till I was 16. Okay. Um, and that was purely by accident because we used to go to a pub in East London, a county town called Bridge House, and there was a band used to play up there called Power Pack. Okay. And Terry Newman, this band was just unbelievable. This band was unbelievable. And, um, you know, when you think of it, it was like 1970, 75 or something like that. And this band in a pub had a Hammond organ with two Leslie's. The guitarist had two 50-watt Marshalls or four 4 by 12 Marshalls in a pub. <laughs> and the band were like, you know, from from speaking to um, everything you could think of by Deep Purple, Highway Star, yeah. uh, King Crimson, they played a lot. And we used to just stand there. We were underage. Um, we used to stand there and just be amazed at watching them. And uh, my dream was one day to get up and play with this band. Uh, and it was purely by accident that um, six, uh, five, six of us went to Jersey when we were 16. And uh, one of the guys had a, a guitar, an old Burns, and he wanted to sell it because he wanted to buy a Paul McCartney uh, cello bass. Uh -huh. So while we were in, in Jersey, I said, I'll buy it from you because I was working in the docks. I left school at 14 because oh, wow. we were poor and we lived in an old bombed house in Canyon Town. There was no heating. There was no hot water. It was, like, painful. So you had to go and work at an early age to, to pay towards the, the fact that me, me, mum and dad, just the three of us. Sure. So you had to get off to work early, and it put me in good stead for, uh, for being, you know, strict with myself and disciplined. And, um, and while we were in Germany, I bought, uh, in Jersey, I bought this guitar. 
uh, I was earning good money, don't forget. I was 16. I was in an apprenticeship for marine engineering. Oh, cool. So I was earning more than my mates that were in a factory in East London. Yeah. Um, and when I got home, I bought this Burns guitar. I couldn't play it. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't even tune it. Right. But So what I used to do was go to the pub every night, five nights a week, and watch Terry Newman play this Les Paul. And I'd watch his fingers and whereabouts on the guitar. He'd, he'd have his fingers with the frets. And then I used to go home, and if, oh, if I hadn't have had too many pints, I would remember where his hand was. <laughs> and I would re-remember, rethink the song. And I remember one of the first ones was Rock Me Out in the Morning Dew. And it was boom, 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 boom. And that's how I started, watching him and going home and just finding the notes in my ear. Yeah. So that's how it all started, just getting that and learning chords. Awesome, awesome. So you started, I guess, did you, you were in bands, I'm sure, through the years, and but eventually you ended up in Remus Down Boulevard with Dave Edwards. Yeah, yeah. When you guys formed that band, did you did he have the similar love for harmonies vocally and guitar yeah. harmonies as well? Yeah, well, one of one of our favorite bands in them days, which a lot of people don't remember, was Capability Brown. Uh, now, if you remember around about the mid seventies, Wishbone Ash, um, okay. you know, the first three albums, and then when Argus came out, and we were mad on it, and. Um, Dave was in one band and we were in another with Wedgwood, but we'd all be doing harmonies all the time um, and then learning the harmony vocals. So basically when we we were playing, Wedgwood was resident at Bridge House and uh, I just said to the bass player, look, and we, need, we had a keyboard player and I said, I really want another guitarist just to do the harmony guitars, the Wishbone Ash stuff. Yeah, Katie Brown stuff, you know, keep death off the road, drive on the pavement. So uh, it was one of those things that we got Dave in. But the good thing for RDB was that we already had a huge following with Wedgwood at the Bridge House two nights a week. Okay. So when we spoke to Terry Murphy and we said, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna break this band up, but if you give us two weeks, we'll come back with another band with two guitarists." and uh, that's what we did. We went away in a rehearsal room for a couple of weeks. We we did quite a few covers, like with Brown stuff, uh, Billy Brown stuff. But we also wrote six or seven songs for ourselves and went straight back to the bridge house and started playing. Cool, cool. Um, how long were you? And you got together in about seventy-five, is what I read. So yeah, about seventy-four, seventy-five. Yeah. Okay, so four or five years before the opportunity for Maiden ever came along. Um, yeah. So before before anything happened with Iron Maiden, I know. Did you ever see them? Did you ever see them with any of their former singers, like with uh, Paul Mario Day or Dennis Wilcock, or even with uh, Paul Diano? No, no. How- it, it was it was strange because um, Terry Murphy's brother-in-law Joe Lucy had the Ruskin, and uh, we were based um, we were based at the Bridge House. Maiden were based at the Ruskin. Now, I know it's only like, um, say, uh, 20 minutes drive from one pub to another. Sure. So we were based in, in the Bridge House. So basically, we never... Our pub, Steve and Dave from Maiden used to come down to the Bridge House to watch RDB uh, on a Sunday night because they didn't play the Ruskin on a Sunday. 
Okay. Yeah, I could I could yeah. see that. That seems like the type of music that Steve likes because the the guitar harmonies and the vocal harmonies you, you hear a lot of that. So I always remember Steve coming in with a leather jacket because he always wore the West Ham scarf. Oh yeah, he stuck out as I'm on stage. I'm saying, <laughs> <laughs> so um, did you? So okay, so you said him and Dave were coming to see you guys. Did you have any? Yeah. Had you ever met him, or did you have any kind of relationship with any of them before? No, no, not at all. It was just that I remember them coming to the Bridge House. They'd probably been in rehearsals, or they'd probably been somewhere. Yeah, and they used to come to to the Bridge House watch us play. And it wasn't only it was only until. Uh, when they sent me the telegram to meet them at the ship at Wardour Street to to discuss joining the band, it was only then that I recognised Steve and said, well, so you're the guy with a West Ham shirt. That's uh, so, yeah. Hey, can, can you see what I'm wearing? I saw it, yeah. Not too good about yesterday's result. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I started my podcast a year ago, and I didn't know much at all about the English Premier League or anything, so I'm, I'm slowly uh, learning about it. I've talked to a lot of people you know, from England and from overseas and different spots that all are into it. So I'm kind of, I'm trying to pick it up a little as I go. So. Yeah. It's, it's, it's West Ham are one of the stressful teams <laughs> to support. It's, it's everyone's second team and you, you need a strong heart and uh, uh, it's not good for the blood pressure to be a West Ham supporter. Maybe, maybe you, know? maybe you even need a lion heart, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it was funny, funny enough. It, uh, when one year we were at the O2, uh, we've made them because um, every time they play, well, we, we go and see them. And if Steve's over here, matter uh-huh. of fact, I spoke to him this morning about the result last night, and no <laughs> words. The, the, the answer was no words can explain <laughs> it. But um, it was funny because years ago, uh, when they did the American tour, um, uh, my daughter Carly, who was then around about eighteen, um. She did the nanny's job for Steve and Lorraine for the children. Okay. So she was looking after George and looking after Lauren. And uh, they all grew up together. And because uh, I hadn't seen Steve for many, many years. And uh, you know, when you're busy with Lionheart, Pramantis and whatever, yeah, you don't see one another much. And because Steve lives out of the country. So... Um, we were at the O2 and Carly, my daughter, was there and Lauren was there and George was there. And they, and they were all, oh, hello, we haven't seen you for so many years, you know. And and the thing was that Steve had already brought his children up to support West Ham. <laughs> and so have I. And we were standing there and I said, it, it makes you feel a bit old, doesn't it? You know, when you look at the children all grown up and all talking to one another. Right. Uh, uh, and he said, he said to me, yeah, imagine the... the the torture that we've put our children through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> supporting, supporting West Ham. Yeah. Um, I know. It's, it, you know, it's an old saying, you know, you need a strong heart to, to, um, to support West Ham. You're right, right, right. Very stressful. So let me ask you, so you had the meeting with, an, and if I'm, if I'm, if I've heard right, is it was it Steve, Dave and Rod Smallwood that were at the meeting when you met them? No, Rod wasn't there. It was just Steve and Dave. Okay. Uh, yeah, Rod wasn't there, no. So how did it, what, it, what it was is that um, because Steve used to come down to the Bridge House and watch me play, and and uh, his girlfriend at the time, Lorraine, um, he they were younger than me, um, and I was getting on a bus, uh, and Lorraine got on the bus, the same bus, and she said, um, "You're Dennis. You play at the Bridge House." I said, "Yes." Yeah. So when Steve 
They're trying to get in touch with you. <laughs> so I gave her my address just by chance because we were sitting on the bus. Uh-huh. And the next week I got a telegram saying to ring Rod Smallwood on this number. Okay. And I, and I rang him and he said, like, can you make it down to the ship at Wardour Street uh, to meet the guys? And um, I think it was just Dave and Steve coming along. So, because there was only three of them in the band at the time. Right, right, right. You know. So how did how did the um, you had that meeting with them? I mean, was there? Do you what do you remember about it? Yeah, we just sat in the corner, um, chatting away. Uh, they were telling me about that they've just signed a deal with EMI, um, and it was uh, I imagine a very good deal because in them days, you know, bands weren't getting signed and. Um, we had a long chat about um, what they've been doing. Uh-huh. They knew all about me because they watched me play at the Bridge House. Um, we never actually spoke about uh, whether or not the uh, music influences or our music tastes, may say, um, came right. into it. Sure. Um, so basically, we, they gave me the Soundhouse tapes. They gave me some cassettes to listen to. Um we, I made made the point that uh, with two guitars, you know, I do love the harmony guitars. It's it's, a, it's my way of expanding, making the sound bigger. Yeah. Uh, more interesting with the songs rather than just rhythm and lead. Um, they were all up for that, and um, and then I took the tapes home and just worked on them. And there was a lot of opportunity to put the second guitar there where there was a lot of gap, a lot of space, you know. So you heard it, so you, you were listening to it, and immediately you were hearing, I could add this here, I can do this. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It was, you know, you got to remember that in them days, their demos were quite punky and very uh, fast and erratic. Sure. So it was, there was a lot, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of space to, to, to add stuff, you know, just, you know, not without trying to make it too commercial. You know, that was, didn't want to take away the, the rawness of the um, of what their fan base loved, which was that you know their complete energy and power, you know. Right, right. So, so did you accept when they offered you to be in the band? Did you immediately accept the offer? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, you know they um, they just set up a pub, you know, at the ship. They said, "Well, the gig's yours if you want it." And I said, "Well, why don't you know we go down? You've got they're re- they're in a rehearsal studio." Mm-hmm. Uh, not far from where we were and I, uh, in East London. So I said, I'll come down. But then I said, give me a couple of days to run through, you know, these songs. I can't actually remember. remember Prowler there running free and um, Phantom mm-hmm. and um, maybe uh, Iron Maiden. Uh, it was about five songs I, I had on the cassette. And... Um, so, yeah, I just run through them. Then I can start getting a little bit excited because there was loads of space for the harmony guitar stuff and all that, you know. And then they gave me the address of the studio and I went to the studio, walked in. Uh, there was no drummer, as you would expect. Um, Deanna weren't there, I don't think. Um, me and Dave sat down and I said to Steve, look, I've learned the songs, but... You might find them a little sounding a little bit different because with the two guitars and and I was talking to Dave about certain certain um, little phrases, certain licks that you know that where I could put the harmonies and things like that. 
And Dave, Dave was great. You know, he, he said, like, well, you know, don't, Dave, don't say a lot. And he just went, that's yeah, great. You know, let's do it. And so we just started rehearsing. And then Deanna come down the next day and uh, we run through with the vocal, still no drums. And that was when I said, it's a bit strange. Are you looking for a drummer as well? And they said, yeah. So it was just a coincidence. I bumped into Clive at a pub uh, not far from where we lived that we used to sometimes sit outside because it was like in just near Ebbing Forest, which is like near the countryside. Uh-huh. For East Enders, it was the countryside. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and then I said to Clive, I'll put your name forward and then the rest is history, you know. Well, let me ask you because I'm glad you brought that up because. I've never heard a lot of people talk too much about Clive Burr. Maybe I just haven't read the right interviews, but how did you actually know Clive at that point? Was it just from being in other bands or? Yeah. Well, it's all on the pub circuit. You know, um, he, he was playing in different, he lived, he didn't leave far from me. So you were going to bump into people in the pubs because we all go to different pubs listening to bands. Um, uh, but yeah, it was through listening to other bands, go down, meet them and, and, it was just a coincidence that that day, otherwise I would never have known how to get in contact with him. Right. I knew where his mum and, mum and dad lived. Okay. But uh, he, um, I would never have known how to get hold of him. So um, it was just a coincidence that I was walking into the pub and he was coming out. Okay. And I just said, Clive, can I have a quick word? And then when I went and saw Steve the next day, I told him about it. I did take another drummer down to the, uh, to the rehearsal room the week before. Uh, Johnny Richardson, because Johnny was a drummer of RDB with me and Dave at first, and um, he was a fantastic drummer, but yeah. um, he had problems with his ears. Uh-huh. So it was problem in the nerves inside the eardrums, and they couldn't have it too loud. He had to wear headphones. Sure. So you protection. So you so actually brought a different drummer down there before before you brought Clive. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Johnny played about half a song. And he, he just stopped and said, "I can't do this. It's too too loud." Okay. And okay. Uh, so there was no there was no problem about it. You know, we were at, we were in the studio anyway. And then I took Clive down a few days later, and Clive was fine. You know. Did you did you ever? How did you? I know you knew of Clive, but did you did you ever play with him or anything? Did you? How did you know about his drumming chops? Oh, I don't think I did. No. In them days, I think you were there were certain standards of musicians in the East End of London, uh-huh. and everyone knew that someone was good or he was a average, and, and it just worked out that way. Right, right. So we, we had a little. We, I give Clive a bit of an advantage because I had the cassettes tonight from the songs. So in the car on the way to the studio, I was able to play him um, uh, "Prowler" or um, "Drifter." Iron Maiden. Oh, cool! So he already had the idea of the song in his head, so he could play along with it. You know. Do you do you know was was Clive playing in another band at the time? Whenever he ended up uh, joining up with Maiden. Yeah, I, I think so. I can't remember the name. Uh, that's I, I have a friend that's a like a Maiden historian, and he was like, "If you can ask Dennis what the name of the band Clive was in, because he said nobody yeah. seems to know." Oh, <laughs> uh, I know, I know, Adrian was reverting. Right. Uh, we used to see them on on the road, you know, at the gigs. Everyone played the same venues in Oxford or Reading or wherever we went. Um, but Clive's, no, I, unfortunately, I can't remember the band he was playing with. Ah, that's okay. Did, let me ask you, um, 
let's see here. When when what was it like when Clive tried out? How did that go? How was that? It was it was okay. Um, it was good. Um, funny enough, a couple of times we were in the stu- studio on our own, and I love playing drums. And uh, uh, every now and again, I'd get on the kit and have a little knock about, and and, and uh, then we came to Phantom, <laughs> and and he he was playing straight four, you know, and, I, and I'm. I said, it sounds boring, you know. Yeah. So he said, well, how would you, how would you play it? I said, well, I'll play it like a guitarist and play the drums. So, yeah. like, dun, 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 dun. so he ended up doing that. That's funny. That is funny. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. Bro. So so when they heard him play, were they just like, we got to yeah. have this guy? Yeah, I think, I think they were happy with what he did uh, at the time because they knew he he had never known any of the songs before, so because he had that advantage of listening to the cassettes, right? He had a little edge. They tried a few other drummers, but I wasn't there when they tried the drummers. Okay, now if you don't mind, I'm going to skip forward just a bit, and I want to ask because I want to I want to ask a few questions about Clive, and then get back to the to the story here. Um, after after you were out of Maiden, and then of course Clive was out within a couple of years as well. Did you maintain contact with him through the years? Yeah. Yeah. Cause um, the funny thing was uh, while I was with Lionheart, he was with Tino and Chris in the, the other band. Strauss. I can't remember now. Right. Right. He, he went working with Tino Troy on a, on a couple of albums. So he was still sort of like, and also we still live local to one another. So okay. It was one of them things that uh, you're still going to bump into one another. But, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I think we still kept it not, not a lot. Sure. Um, but it was still able to keep in contact, yeah. Okay. Uh, another question. He, Clive Burr played on the Praying Mantis live album with you guys, uh, Captured Alive yeah. in Tokyo. Um, yeah. How did, how did he end up getting to play with you all on that? Well, in 1990, we, we signed a deal with Pony Canyon, and it was uh, we were sort of Japanese record label. So our biggest, um, I can say, not fan base, but our biggest shows, because in England, we, we Prime Mantis could only do festivals or smaller shows, smaller gigs. Okay, um, we'd never be able to headline uh, any of the big the big shows like Hammersmith. So. We used to go to Japan quite a lot. For over 15 years, we were there quite a long time, backwards and forwards. Um, and even if it was just an acoustic visit, you know, to promote something, we'd go over there and sit in TV studios and do acoustic stuff. But um, uh, what happened, we'd built up, we did the first, first three, three albums, and it was really going well in Japan, really well. You know, three nights in, in certain places in Tokyo, we played three nights. It was going really well. And um, we always had a problem with singers. I don't know what it is with me because Lionheart always had a problem with singers and so did Mantis. And um, in, in the end, we had great singers come in, but they were always looking for something else. Doogie White, always looking for another gig. Yeah. And um, the, the first few singers that came in did the job. Then one Colin Peel wanted to st- stick to acting. So he went back to acting. So we always had a problem with, but the, the, me, Tino, Chris, and Bruce Bislin were the four in the band. And it was me, Chris, and Tino, like three brothers, 
that wrote all the, all the stuff. Okay. Um, but we were really building up to um, this live album, and um, Bruce decided cycling uh, to keep fit, and he fell off his bike. Oh boy! And broke his arm. Oh. So you're looking at six months out, and um, then because uh, they 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 react, they were asking me about Gary Barden on the vocals, and I said I'm not commenting. Um, <laughs> I was worried because the singers, a lot of the Mantis stuff, the, the, the vocal is quite high, and right. uh, it's quite demanding. So. Um, then I went. Then I went to Clive's house over near Wanstead, where we where we met near the pub where we first met again. Uh-huh. And um, I spoke to him about it, and uh, I said the thing is, because Clive was a, a heavy drummer, and I wouldn't say he was too technical, like drummers I've played with in the past okay. are very technical yeah. and fast and different styles. Clive was a powerful drummer. And I said, you're not going to be able to play everything that Bruce has played on the albums, but just do, just put your own mark to it. Just do your own thing. And uh, it was hard work, but um, Clive had to write everything down. Everything had to be okay. written out in, in um, sheets on a, on a music stand, which didn't help him much, you know. Yeah. Um, he kept forgetting things and going back and, and we did a, a lot of rehearsals for that for that tour, and um, and then it got to the point where when we got there, um, when we started recording, we realised that Gary Barden had, had um, something wrong with his throat, his voice, and we had to start rearranging backing vocals to help him because it was being recorded live, you know. So um, hmm. some of the stuff we had to repair, but. Uh, with Clive, yeah, he was fine. And also, we also felt that having the maiden connection of sure. me and him joining forces again to do this live album might have, which it did, uh, put a bit more interest in, in Prime Manus to get more exposure. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, I have to add, I just have to add this on my two favorite Praying Manus songs are Children of the Earth and Lovers to the Grave. And yeah. the versions that are on that live album, are they're phenomenal. <laughs> God, I love them yeah. so much. I didn't realize up until recently, I, I hadn't watched the videos. I had just heard the audio. And so a while back, I was doing something, and I was just like, let me pull up a video on YouTube, and, and I wanted to listen to uh, Children of the Earth. And it, it came on, and I looked, and I was like, wait, that's Clive Burr playing drums. I didn't... Because I had someone had told me that he never played. Because I asked, I said, "Did Dennis ever play with Clive Burr again?" And he said, "No." And I found that like the next day, and I was like, "Whoa, check this out!" So, well, the thing is, the thing is that it was always Bruce's seat. Sure. Um, uh, it was just the fact that he couldn't do that trip, right? And uh, Clive knew that, and um, he was quite good about it uh, to to fill in for that for that one. And when we came back. Um, we we didn't see Clive very much, and then he then he then he became ill, so it was hard for us to keep keep in contact with him when he was deteriorating. So. Yeah, I was. That's what I was going to ask you next is is what your relationship was like with him after after that. If it got yeah, any better, it was, it was hard because um, I I wouldn't I couldn't get involved too much because 
uh, although I was very busy um, with praying mantis and whatever, but um, as it deteriorated, um, it was hard to visit. Um, you had to, you know, what to do with a right or wrong. Yeah. And then when we see um, Clybade um, and Maiden raised quite a lot of money for him, which was great, and they had all his house um, renovated into uh, cranes and lifts and things like that. And Jack, oh, wow. Yeah. All the hydraulics, and it was great. Um, and it was only to the fact that um, I didn't want to go over and, and become a pest or get in the way with Mimi was looking after him and she was so... She had what she wasn't deteriorating, but she was still, you know, with the MS, she was still suffering. Sure. But there was, sure. no, it was a hard to try and show if you could do something, which you couldn't do anything. It's all it down to the medication and everything else. Mm. And it wasn't until um, it got it got really bad that um, a, a friend of mine contacted me, um, and uh, he said, um, Clive. You know, Mimi thinks it'd be a really good idea for you to come over um, because we don't know how long Clive's got. And um, so I contacted Dave Lights and Pete Bryant and Loopy. I think Loopy was away. I'm not sure if Loopy made it. But we went over to see him and uh, it was heartbreaking because he couldn't move and um, he could smile, but you, he knew you were there. Yeah. Um, but you just feel helpless. You, there's nothing you can do, you know. And and then when we we were there for a couple of hours, and we sit next to him, he's holding his hand, talking about it, Formula One Grand Prix because he loved that. Yeah. And and uh, all the old times, and you could see his eyes sort of like he knew what you were saying, but yeah. you're just locked in that shell, you know. It's, and um, when we left, it was um, trying to think of the guy's name. It will come to me. No, no, um, photographer. No, it will come to me. He was the one that called me. Yeah. And um, we went to the pub after, and we sat in the pub, four of us, and it was complete silence. And we just sat there because we were in shock. And um, we just looked at one another. I didn't know what to say. You know, it's just. And I did say to him, "Don't anyone ever meant, don't ever moan about having a cold or." a cough or I've got the flu. Sure. Don't ever moan because when you see that, you realize how lucky you are. You know? Yeah. It really gives you an appreciation. It makes you realize that the trivial things that we complain about sometimes. Yeah. 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 Well, um, I'll ask one, one more quick question on Clive here. Do you, do you have a good story? Like a, I guess, cause I guess we brought it down. I brought us down here. Uh, did what's a good Clive story that you can tell uh, on the air? <laughs> Oh, it was, well, me and Clive, because we joined the band together, really, um, we used to start it off sharing hotel rooms. But Clive smoked, and I've never smoked in my life. Uh-huh. So that was a no-no straight away. And so basically, some of the funnier things were basically, um, well, some of them are quite rude, so I can't tell you that. Right. Um, but uh, it, it was one of them things where I, I went to Vic Bella, he was touring manager at the time. Uh-huh. And I'd said, you, you, we've got to change rooms because I'll end up throwing him out the window. I said, because he sits in bed smoking. I can't have it, you know, stink and all that. <laughs> but the funniest thing with Clive is that he hated finger, cut fingernails and toenails. 
he hated it. You know, when you click, guitarists are always, you know, clipping their fingernails, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. He hated it if a fingernail went on the floor. So um, me and Dave Lights, because we were all, I did a lot of touring with the road crew because they were so funny. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember one night at the hotel that we, we collected all our fingernails <laughs> and we jammed his lock at his, with, his, with his key. We jammed his lock with toenails and fingernails <laughs> in his lock. And we'd all been and had a drink at the bar. As we were walking up to the rooms, everyone said goodnight. And I remember Clive sort of putting his key in the door. It was jamming. He did. So my key won't go in the door. And I went, what's it? If something's blocking it, Clive, have a look. You got? And I, I think it was um, Dave Lights had some kind of uh, pen or, or something, pencil or something. Give it to Clive. And he started putting it in all of a sudden. <laughs> all, all the fingernails come out the lock. And he's... <laughs> We just locked under our rooms and locked the doors. You can hear it up around. Yeah. That's hilarious. That's but there's loads of there's loads of you know. We used to have a laugh because we our music tastes were quite similar, and uh, you know you can see the photo on the beach at, in um, in Lilo's Yeslo in Italy on the Kiss tour. Yeah, there's photos of us on the beach in deck chairs, and there's Clive with a tray acting as the waiter. You know, what I mean, it's always always joking around. You know. <laughs> That is so, that is funny. That is really funny. Oh gosh. Okay. So, um, let me, I'll get back to 1979 real quick here. I guess probably 1980. How soon after you and Clive got into the band, how soon did you actually start rehearsing? Cause I know you were going to do the metal for mother's tour and then start recording. Is that right? Is that the order? Yeah. Metal for mother's. Yeah. Well, basically <laughs> it, it's a little bit of a blur, but what I can remember is that um, the studio where we where we stayed, Hollywood Studios over in Clapham, um, all the gear was set up. So that's where we started rehearsing for uh, the Metal for Mothers tour. But at the same time, we were running through songs that we were going to be recording for the album um, because it was a very rushed pressure. You know, sure. EMI had a date they needed the album released by. Um, we were hearing it second and third hand because he went to Rod, then he went to Steve, then it came to us. So basically, you're, you're doing a you're doing a double double job. You're 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 working on the gig, uh, live gig for the live set. You're also learning as you're going along, bringing other songs in because you got to remember Steve had say twenty. Let's say. Off the top of me, he had 20 songs. He could have had more. But let's say he had 20 songs. And it went from, you know, from the early days right up until um, Phantom of the Opera, or the, sure. the newer stuff. And um, so basically, we've got two jobs to do. You've got to do, and I've said this so many times, what people don't realise, is that you're, you're headlining a show, Metal for Mothers, with Prayer Mantis supporting. So... You need an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and 20 minutes because you're headlining. Right. So you need 16 songs, maybe, depending how long the solos are. Right. At the same time, you're picking nine, eight, nine songs, Stevie's, for the album. So you're, you're taking all these mental notes in and, okay, so we've got Prowler, we've got Running Free, we've got Phantom, we've got Remember Tomorrow. All these were doing live, but at the same time, 
uh, we're bringing other songs in to pad the set out. Um, so luckily, we were able to start the Metal for Mothers tour. I don't know what month or whatever it was, but we had enough songs to do an hour and say 15 minutes, bit of audience participation and whatever. Yeah. Um, so let's say 16 songs of that. And uh, we worked on them. Then halfway through the Metal for Mothers tour, we get told the tour's being halted while you go and do this album. <laughs> they need the album now. So next minute, we're in the studio. Um, we're going to resume the tour, just the dates got put back. But because it was easy in them days, it isn't so bad. It's nutty now. Like when yeah. you play the gigs they do, they've got to be booked up a year and two in advance. Right. But um, these were universities and these were like, you know, sports, sports centres and, you know, 1,500 people, you know, so it wasn't the end of the world. And, um, and then I remember going into the studio at Kingsway and Clive was done his drums and Dave, everyone had done their parts. But because I was doing my sort of thing, which I'd stay in the studio on my own with the engineer, and so we'd be laying down these harmonies, or I'd be doing harmony vocals. Yeah. And most of the time, I'd, I'd stay behind and do that. But once, it was such a rush to get this album finished, and there's loads of things that you look back on and think, Jesus, if I had a chance again, I could have done that really a lot better. And sure. a lot of people say to me, if you had the time and you could have polished that album up, would it, would it have sounded the same? Would it have sounded so raw and new and powerful and punky, you know. Yeah. So you don't know whether or not too much time, too much polish could have taken it away. You don't know. Right. Well, we're never going to know. Um, and so the album, we did the album, which was like a blur, <laughs> um, and then resumed the uh, Metal for Mothers tour. But then directly after that, because um, Steve knew what was going on the first album, because I remember saying to him, we've got all these great songs. He went, yeah, but we, don't forget, we need a second album. And so we've got all these songs. And so that's why, because he knew the songs, because he wrote them. Sure. He knew what was on the first album. He knew what, what songs he was saving for the second album, you know, like Rothschild and things like that. Right. Um, so there we were playing these 16, 17 songs or whatever, finished the Metal for Mothers tour, and then we get the Judas Priest tour, which means, well, hold on, we only need eight songs because we're supporting, so you've got 45 minutes. Yeah. But that's the difference. We could we could pick and choose. But by that time, I'd learned the songs playing backwards, but it was the first the, the first teething problems that we went, we went on the Metal for Mothers tour just to play live with the band um, in front of an audience. Yeah. That's a different, different ball game altogether, isn't it? So we actually learn on the road at to pull it to you know a, a unit. That's really that's really cool. I mean, you it, it's like you said, it sounds very pressured because you're doing one thing and then immediately they throw you into something else. Was that your first time into the recording studio? Oh no 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 no! And that's why they got me in the band because I was five years older than them, and I'd already been on tour with Status Quo um, oh. all over all over. Um, Europe, Scandinavia in, in 76. Okay. Um, so I had experience of um, working with big audiences, you know, with quite, there was 60,000 
70,000 uh, arenas wow. all over Europe, France, all over. And then Scandinavia, they were all, you know, all the um, Scandinavian countries were all ice hockey stadiums and uh, okay, and then sort of, you know. So uh, I'd already had the experience of recording studios. Uh, I worked with a few bands before Maiden, No Dice, um, all, uh, little bands, but still recording. Okay. And, uh, okay. And so with the big audiences, the big stages, I'd already had the experience, yeah. Okay, okay. Which song would you say was the most difficult to rec- – was there, was one song more difficult than the others? I would think Phantom of the Opera, but – Yeah, that – that um, the, it, it wasn't hard for me to play. Um, right. It was, it was always strange at the beginning because there was no count. <laughs> so you know, you'd, you'd sort of like shout, I can't do that. There's no count. Right. So it, it became um, a visual thing, whereas uh, when, we, when we go to play it, um, it'll be that, you know. Gotcha. You know, that, and, and funny enough, that, that's what we do when I do it with Dave sometimes with the backing track or when I'm, when I'm in, in, in Europe and I play with all these maiden bands. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. That, that's, 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 there's no count. So it's like, and, and, but the funny thing was, in between the stops, there's no count there either. You just, you just felt it. And every night, if you played it the same, you could actually close your eyes and you didn't have to look at one another. So it's a, it was a feel sort of actor. That's really, really neat. That's you know, really visual neat. thing. You know, if you go, and, and that was the movement. So you knew you're all in time, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's really that is. I mean, Phantom of the Opera is an awesome song. It's got lots of the intricate changes. I, the other one I was thinking would be maybe Transylvania, just because it's so quick paced and a lot of things going on in it. So, yeah, now that's that's pretty straightforward, you know. With the um, there's a couple of people that I played it with, especially Dave. He could never get the down da 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 He was but yeah, it, that's the, the, the guitar. That that it will do. Yeah. If you keep that going, you're picking finger. That's cool. the one that keeps you in time, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, all I can say, we got to go to a break here in just a second. But I I can play Phantom of the Opera really well, the way you originally started playing on a tennis racket. I can do it really good on there. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Well, um, we are about to go to a break, so stay tuned. For more with Dennis Stratton, we will be big. Uh, we will be back with a song, and then a whole lot more with Dennis Stratton. All right, this is Steve, host of Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone. I'll be broadcasting live each week Mondays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central United States time. Log on to hear killer music, lots of rock talk, interviews, and much, much more. So be sure to log on each week Mondays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. United States Central time to catch Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone on Fishbowl Radio Network. Okay, this is where we went to a commercial break, obviously. And the next song is what Dennis chose to bring us back from the break. I'm going to play just a little bit of the intro and the outro to give it the feel. Okay, so here we go.
All right. Welcome back to Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone. I'm your host, Uncle Steve. I'm here with Dennis Stratton. And during the break, we were talking about a lot of different things, one of which was that Dennis recorded. We were talking about the Judas Priest tour because that's where we were about to go into. He talked about how Dennis said some things at that point. And I said, well, wait, what about whenever you tour, whenever you did the albums with Dennis, uh, the Iron Man albums? And he said, do you want me to tell the story? And I said, we don't have time. And he goes, well, we can do it when we get back on. So Dennis, tell us the story about the Iron Man albums that you did with Paul Diano. Well, I never, uh, that's the truth of it. Um, it was around 92, 1992. I was contracted with Iron Man and uh, with, uh, Praying Mantis to Pony Canyon. Um, I was approached by a witch then at that time was a so-called friend of mine, name of Lee Hart. Okay. And basically, he approached me um, with an idea to do some kind of solo project. Um, and he had all the tapes from Fastway. He had the tapes that he'd been working on with Chris O'Shaughnessy. Um, around about 1991, 92, this, this sort of year. At the time, I was working very much with, with Praia Mantis, and I was running the Carlton Horses Pub in Stratford, where Maiden first started. I was oh, the governor there in yeah. 92, and I was running the pub. Plus, I was playing there. And uh, So this so-called friend asked me to get involved with these songs. I said, yeah, fantastic. So he had me in the studio. Chris O'Shaughnessy was engineering. And we must have gone through about 12 songs. Um, and these were all me singing, doing a quite a lot of the guitar stuff on it. Chris O'Shaughnessy was playing guitars on it. Um, unbeknown to me, these songs were also being put on other albums, but they were basically compilation albums. Okay. And uh, so the next thing is um, we, we put a band together called the All Stars, then we went to Russia, and it was all mates and everything else. But all the recordings I did um, were put on uh, compilations albums. So it was like maybe British still, it was English still. It sure. was true grits. Yeah. It was loads of stuff. Um, but they were all bootlegs uh, in Japan. And so me thinking I'm doing a recording uh, for myself, these songs were taken and uh, in good faith. Yeah. And uh, then put on all these compilations albums mm. and then put out, so the next thing I remember, because I don't know this is happening, the next thing I get is a phone call from Pony Canyon in Tokyo asking me what's going on because um, apparently I'd uh, okayed this to go on um, the original Iron Man, which I never knew anything about. Right. So all these albums that came out on bootleg or whatever, this so-called friend of mine, had done separate deals with these compilations albums with certain record companies, took the money for himself, and basically none of them musicians on them compilation albums saw any money. Whether or not most of the people on them compilation albums 
didn't even play on the album. Oh, wow. He just put their names on there. Yeah. So I never had a clue about original Iron Man. I didn't know anything about it. I've had to go on my Wikipedia yeah. and change it to say, I did not record this album with Paul Diano. These songs were totally me playing in the studio. He took them, put them on the compilation album. Next minute, I get a phone call from Pony Canyon that I'm threatening the um, uh, Prayer Mantis's reputation. Yeah. The record company approached my so-called friend, who then said he would take these albums off sale for a certain figure of money sure. from the record company. Of course. Uh, and then I found out about three or four or five years later, he then started managing Paul Diana. Mm. Mm. And that's the last I heard about. Wow. Well, that's... So, unfortunately, I'll tell these kids, wherever I go in Italy, wherever I am in the world, they bring these CDs down for me to sign, and I tell every one of them, I, this is not, this is me, but I did not record this album with Paul Diano. Wow. That's wild. That. That's wild. And that's exactly what happened. And I, I don't know what happened in the end. I did see a solicitor, uh, and he said to me, I showed him all the albums, and he did say to me, Dennis, for the amount of money it would cost you to take this guy to court, uh, you, you, you know, it wouldn't be worth right. it. Right. Yeah. So basically, you know, that's, that's the, the truth of the matter. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Well, that that's that's good to have that. At least I I didn't know that, and, and I've talked to a couple well, of people that didn't know see, that. See, again, as you we said in the break, that you mentioned about the Anno coming to to in 1990 to do live um, live at live. What was the name of the album? Is it Live um, from Japan? Huh? Live from Japan? Is that what it's called? No, 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 not that one. The one, the very first one we did before um, we we did the studio album, Live at Last. Live at Last. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and we went in good faith with Paul then just to do that first tour because Pony Canyon wanted to do a live album. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when we came back, we just – Paul was never in Promantis. We just did that as a one-off. And when we come back, said bye-bye. And that was it. Yeah. So this all happened after that. You know? Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, okay. So let me, let me go back here to um, – you when Iron Maiden was going to go on tour with Judas Priest. Now I was, I was curious about it because now you said you've already played at that point to big audiences, but what was your, did you have any kind of a good relationship with the guys and Judas Priest on the tour or what? I, I did. Yeah. I, as I say, you know, with RDB, um, we toured all over, all over the Europe and Scandinavia with status quo. And I was used to playing 60,000 people a night. Sure. You know, this is coming from, RDB coming from Marquee going on tour with, with Status Quo was a big step up the ladder, and you get you, you do all your apprenticeship in one night. And um, but no, what happened? Something was said uh, again. I don't know what was said. Um, Paul said something in the press about KK Downing. Yeah. I don't know exactly what words he said. I imagine some Maiden fans would know. Yeah. Uh, KK Downing didn't take too nice to it. To, to yeah. And, uh, in the end, it was hard work for us because they made it hard for us to, whether or not the lights were all working oh. or whether the PA was all full on, I don't know. I, all I know is I got on really well with Glenn Tipton. Um, we used to sit in the, in the changing rooms together talking and 
I, while I was tuning up, I borrowed his tune and we'd be having a chat. I never, I never had any problems with him. So, but something was said, and I, I don't actually know what it was. Yeah, I think what I, rec- I read K.K. Downing's book, and it was just something along the lines of, we're going to blow them off the stage. We're going to, you know, something along those lines, which seems like something any band would say. Um, when I, when I, lis- I listened to Rob Halford's audio book, and he even addressed it in there, he just said, you know, K.K., he said, any band is going to say, we want to blow them away, and yeah. which makes sense, but he just said, K.K. kind of holds grudges, and... Yeah. And he and, and he really addressed that in his and Rob Halford addressed that in his book. But yeah, it's, that's cool to know that you got along with Glenn though. That's um, that's because yeah. in KK's book he still sounded like he was upset about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all yeah. these years later, I could imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, another tour you guys did, um, which I guess would have been your last tour with Maiden, but and and I've I grew up I'm, I grew up as a huge huge Kiss fan. So my first question was before you guys ever toured with Kiss. What were what were your thoughts about them as a band? Uh, well, <laughs> me being a little bit older than the, the boys in Maiden, and I've watched Kiss, you know, from the build, from the comic strip stuff and all that. Whether or not they did, I don't know. They could have been, um, but yeah, it was quite funny because um, just quickly, um, just not leaving this out. Um, once the Iron Maiden album was finished, we did actually finish the Metal for Mothers tour. Uh-huh. We did go back out on the road and, and finish that. We didn't want to upset any of any of them. But then, of course, we had Reading Festival. But the Kiss tour, well, it, it, it was amazing because um, these sort of shows, 100,000 people, 60,000, 80,000 people, it reminded me a lot of being on tour with Quo in the 70s. Yeah. Um, so it was exciting for me, um, but it was the the other things that went with it the uh, the makeup and the and the it was it was surreal it was it was crazy you know yeah really mad but uh, no as I say I, I thought it was fantastic what one thing that did surprise me is uh, when we got over to, over to Europe especially in Italy and places like that was the amount of fans that made and had there. Uh-huh. Because um, it was the summer, um, and I remember we'd be on the tour bus and driving into the football stadiums or wherever we were playing, and all the fans are outside the stadium in the afternoon, um, lazing in the sun and, and <laughs> chatting. Away. And the amount of maiden t-shirts that we used to see sure. out the windows of the coach was amazing. So. Uh, you know, I think the audiences were 50-50 out there in Europe. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I've heard I've heard things about Iron Maiden kind of outselling Kiss sometimes in the T-shirts and things like that, and that yeah. stuff yeah. got limited later on. And um, yeah, but yeah, I, I actually had a guy on my podcast about a year ago, and he saw you guys in the Netherlands opening opening for Kiss, and he at the time he went to see Kiss. He didn't know who Iron Maiden was, and yeah. uh, to this day, he he's a huge Iron Maiden fan, and he says that the first album is his absolute favorite. He said nothing else tops it, and um, you, so that time with I always this is what I thought about. I thought because Kiss started out, you know, in the earlier seventies, and they had a kind of a, a heavier, darker, more sinister kind of yeah. a l- little bit of scariness to them. And then as the years went on, they became more cartoony and things. So when you guys opened for them, y'all were in a prime position. Cause I thought people are going to go wanting to see this hard rock band 
And then they're going to see you guys. I was like, that's, I don't know how y'all got that tour, but that was genius marketing. <laughs> yeah. EMI. See, um, well, I don't know. I just got on them really well. Uh, you know, it, it was one of them things where I think Rod was a little bit, um, naive again, just when we got out there, sure. uh, he was saying, you know, don't want you speaking to them and all that. But that to me is like, Silly because, yeah, you know, you've got all day. You know, we used to get to the stadiums in the afternoon, and, and Gene would be flying across on his harness, practicing the, yeah. on the top of the PA bins, you know, and going from one column to the other, yeah. And uh, it couldn't help but bump into him. But I got on really well, really well with Paul Stanley and, and also Gene Simmons. And um, funny enough, I got on so well with them that on the 9th of October, which is my birthday. We were playing, I think, Stockholm, and they took me and Dave Lights out for dinner. For your birthday, right? Yeah, that's awesome. How how so? How did that go? Was there any any special like any special funny stories that you remember from just that night out? No, it was just it was very because they had a great crew there. This the guy I can't remember his name. He was ex uh, Chicago police force and uh, quite heavy and. Um, their security was, you know, above all. And um, it was at the time where, you know, their makeup, that you could, they couldn't be recognized without sure. you know, when their makeup off. And um, so, you know, they'd wander around during the, during the day at the stadiums doing their, their rehearsal or their sound checks and things, and um, they'd be just normal people. Sure. Um, and then when we went out for my birthday, Paul Stanley came on stage that night, you know, in uh, Stockholm, and um, poured a bucket of something over my head, and he, <laughs> present, he presented me with the white fire hat, the kiss hat. Oh yeah, fire helmet. He presented me that with all the signatures of the band all over the helmet, uh, which was fantastic. But um, there was a there was a little bit of um, a problem at the restaurant because um, they had to the the staff had to confiscate um, any cameras or um, sure. mobile phone cameras if there was any in them days. Right. Um, uh, they had to confiscate any cameras because no photos were even really taken. So it was quite it was quite strange sitting there in a restaurant where, you know, <laughs> security <laughs> so tight, you know. Yeah. But it was great. You know, I loved it. That's awesome. That's it's, it's really, I mean, I know your time in Maiden wasn't super long, but I, I, when, when you think about it, it's like, you, you, straight away, you came out. You you opened. You got to open for Priest, a big band, and then you got to open for Kiss, like in such a short time. So now, yeah, a few years ago, because I a few years ago I wasn't really clear on. You know, I know Steve has a reputation that I know now of really maintaining contact with everybody. He he, I mean, from what I understand, he he still speaks to guys that played in Iron Maiden before they recorded, you know, guys like Paul Mario Day and things like that. Yeah, 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 Gypsy's Kiss, yeah. So I guess it was three or four years ago, I was, you know, messing around on the internet, and I I came across a picture of you with Steve Harris backstage, and, and you and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is this is a more recent picture. This is, And I didn't have any idea that he had all these relationships. And, you know, just from an, from kind of a – not very smart point of view. I just thought, well, you know, it's kind of like a marriage. Once you get out of the marriage, you don't want nothing to do with your ex anymore. Yeah. And so when I saw that, it really warmed my heart. I was like, oh, wow. So I guess, yeah. so, so my question here is, and maybe you answered this earlier when you were talking about your kids seeing each other. 
yeah. which I, that may have been off air. But um, so what was it that because I'm sure leaving or getting out of Maiden, however, well, I don't I hate to ask questions about getting people getting out of something like that. But what was it? Did you was it mutual or was it just you wanting to be out? Was it just them wanting you out? What was it? No, no. The, the problem was um, my musical taste varied quite a lot from theirs. Uh-huh. Um, Rod Smallwood being a young manager at the time, um, and he hadn't, I don't think he'd had much experience with managing a big band like that. Sure. But he's done very well since. <laughs> um, but um, he didn't like the music I listened to. So if I, if I went to my hotel room, and I'd had a really heavy day, and uh, my ears were aching, or the sound check this, and, and something might not have been right. And I'd lay lay on the bed, or just get in the shower, and I'd listen to the Eagles, or I'd listen to George Benson. Okay. Um, anything to relax me. Uh, the little River Band, you know, from Australia. Right. Loads of different. You know, there was loads of music I used to play in the hotel room, but he didn't like the fact that I listened to that kind of music. So. Then we had this long chat about me being into the band. Are you definitely into the band? And I said, well, what's the problem? And he said, well, you travel with a crew sometimes. I said, I travel with a crew because they're funny sure. and we have a laugh. And, and if it, you go for a break, you're still going to be at the sound check on time. Yeah. Matter of fact, if you travel with a crew, you're going to be there before the band. So what are you worried about? Yeah, and then it was he got paranoid about my listening to the Eagles. Listen to that if anyone ever made them fancy you listening to the Eagles and all that, I said, and I used to say to him, Rod, please give me a break. I used to say to him, if I listen to Motorhead twenty four hours a day, my ears would be shot. So <laughs> give true. me a break, you know. Let me. I'm a, and I was a few years older than the rest of the band. I was older than Rod. Yeah, um, and he got to a point where he, he got a bit paranoid about my. And then he started saying about, you know, the band. And I said, look, tell me the truth. Am I not doing my job properly? He said, no, you're doing your job perfectly. But we couldn't ask for more. I said, then please let. And it was a lot of things that happened. He couldn't understand why if we had to do in London, I'd want to go home to see my wife and child where he wanted the whole band to stay at a hotel. Yeah. And he just couldn't get that. And he got to a point where we, we didn't see eye to eye. It got worse. Um, so uh, near the end of the Kiss tour, um, I, I got on very well with the uh, A&R manager from EMI, Gabby, in Germany. She lived in Cologne. She was driving to the show. I'd, I'd go with her in the car. We'd stop for lunch and have a drink and whatever. Just as a different different way of travelling from sure. being in the in the bus or in the bike. So. I've always been the same, you know. I've always, we've always travelled with a crew. Always jumped in the truck. It's for fun. And uh, Luby and Pete and Dave Lights, because I shared rooms with Dave Lights all, for the whole time I was with the band. It's one of those things that he just couldn't handle. And uh, so they made their mind up that I was pretty wrong for the band when it got near the end of the Kiss tour. Yeah. So um, when we got back, we had a long chat about it, and I said, okay, but then. I'm gone, so that was it. That's, it's, that sounds so, there's bands that'll say, oh, well, you don't want to, like what he said, you don't want, what if someone caught you listening to the Eagles? It's like, it's yeah, so yeah. stereotypical of, well, I'm in this hard rock band. I can only listen to hard rock music. And that's such a. Uh, Funny enough, after that, well, 
um, when when uh, <laughs> he was going to ask about Steve, and we, you know, we're old mates and we kept in contact, but we didn't keep in contact uh, at the beginning. Uh, Tony Newton, who, who does all the uh, recordings for the live stuff when he travels around them. I also see Tony quite a lot. He lives near us and uh, he comes down to see me and Dave play, uh-huh. uh, whether it's with the band or the duo or whatever. And uh, Tony was always saying, Dan, when are you going to come and see the boys? You know, Steve, Steve asked about you. You know, and I said, well, we, you know, this went on for, for, for years, but we have to remember is that with Lionheart, for the first four years of Lionheart, and Maiden were making a big name for themselves, touring all over the world. Right. You're not going to see one another. You're not going to bump into one another. Right. Um, after Lionheart, 15 years with Praying Mantis. So there was a long gap. Uh, while Maiden were jetting all around the world, you can't just turn up. You know, Steve still uh, has Shearing Hall, which is in Essex, and it's about half an hour from where I live. I live on a farm in Saffron Walden, just outside, and Steve lives as a place uh, about half an hour from me. It's a lovely place. We go, we've go. we been there for parties, uh, fancy dress parties, but he lives out of the UK now most of the time. Yeah. So we don't – they never saw one another. Right. And they were doing the O2 – um, I don't know how many years ago back it was. It's got to be before Book of Souls, before Final Frontier, before. So I don't know how many years ago it was. But yeah. um, I was sitting at home, and the phone rang. I picked it up, and it was Steve. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And he said, "Oh, I said, who's that?" He said, "Steve Harris." And I said, "What have you been doing for the last thirty years?" <laughs> <laughs> So we had a chat, and he said, why don't you come to the Oto and and come down and meet up? And I went, fantastic. And we went down there. As I say, I took the kids and my partner, Julia. We went down, and uh, we met Steve um, in the in the hospitality area. Yeah. He came down, and as I said, you know, Carly was with me, don't I? Yeah. And um, we've, we've made the arrangements to meet up like that once a year. Okay. And sometimes if he's over in the UK at Christmas time, you know, Steve actually came down to one of the pubs that me and Dave was playing, uh-huh. uh, playing in the duo. And Steve came down to have a beer with us for Christmas, That's you know, nice. so it's still nice to keep in contact. Most of the time we speak is about West Ham, but yeah, you know, it's one of the things, but um, yeah, we even funny enough last year, no, not last year, the year before, uh, eight of us flew out to Vegas and see him at, at the MGM Grand. Okay. So, you know, that, that was great, you know, just to meet up in a different place, you know. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, he does still keep me in contact with all the boys from Gypsy's Kiss and uh, the early days of Maiden, like even when they were a pub and club band, you know, before I joined them. He right. still keeps in contact with them, you know. Well, so let me ask you this, because – being out of Iron Maiden over the years, have you do you make it a point when they put a new album out, or have you over the years like at least heard everything they've done? No, okay. no, I didn't hear. I, I remember the uh, my. I, I don't remember the years, but I did love um, a couple of the albums that they did, where 
when they had the run to the hills and Adrian wrote um, uh, the years. Was it, um, wasted years. Wasted years. Yeah. And uh, two minutes to midnight. And, uh, you know, them songs, um, every time I do an interview, I can never remember the songs. But when when I'm not doing the interview, they all come. <laughs> uh, the evil that men do. Uh, them sort of songs which we played with Maiden United when we were in Europe. Okay. But, but them songs, um, with, uh, Wasted Years, and um, uh, the, as I say, I can't remember them as I'm talking. But them, them songs, they had, a, I don't know what albums they were on, but there was a time I was listening to them, and I said, this, this is fantastic, because they'd gone away from the heavy metal, powerful um, you know, full-on wall of sound. Sure. And when you're listening to Runs of the Hills, you're listening to Wasted Years, you're listening to Two Minutes to Midnight. Um, what's the other one? The uh, Evil That Men Do. Yeah, and then there was one about the angels. Uh, so mm. It was, um, they were really good songs, but very commercial. And I, I loved it at that time. Yeah. But then when they started doing when a couple of the other albums that I didn't like, um, and I never listened to many of them sure. until until we, uh, we went to see them live, which would have been before um, the Final Frontier. Okay. So and then when Final Frontier came out, I listened to that Book of Souls, and then so on. But then of course over the last um, I can't think of the one after that, but <laughs> over the last few years it's been. The um, the tour has been all the history, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They did. Uh, they well, yeah. The last couple of years, especially with what's happened over the last year, you know, it kind of stopped everything. But they were doing the history, the legacy of the beast, and then before that, yeah, that but before that, the albums. Um, I only heard the albums live when they played it live. You know, I didn't buy them. Sure, sure, sure. I would think you would get your own copies personally mailed to you, but. <laughs> no, I- no, I, I had to ask Steve to get to send me the forty-year uh, anniversary of the first album they they re-released, and he and I, I spoke to him on the phone. And he said, "I've already ordered you one." So he ordered me one, which was very. I got two, so he he he, t- he took care of that for me. So I was very grateful that there you he, go, yeah, that he got got me that. Yeah. Well, another thing that's that's really big going on right now um, is. Iron Maiden, after being eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for many, many, many years and just looked over, you're on the ballot to be inducted. It was everybody. Oddly enough, I thought it was odd. Everybody except for Blaze Bailey was included in mm. in the induction thing, which I personally don't agree with. I think they should. And I Okay, well, let me say this. Let me ask you this. Because obviously Maiden, the band, their camp has not – to my knowledge, uttered a peep. And I'm sure that you've been in touch with Steve about it. And I'm not going to ask you to say things that obviously they're not saying in public because they don't want them out there. But um, what do you think about the fact that it, it bothers me. I I talked to blaze about two months ago and and he's a really awesome guy, but what do you think about them not including him? Well, when I first heard that he he wasn't included, I was a bit, shocked and a bit I don't know it was weird why what why wasn't he now 
I know for a fact he was with them for five years. Five and years. Two albums. Yes, sir. And he contributed a hell of a lot to them two albums. But people tell me that it's something to do with the committee that run this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right, yeah, it's their but choice. It has to be certain years involved with so many years and so I don't actually know. Some would have to read the rules to me. But I definitely think it's 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 heartbreaking not to be included. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think they make up the rules as they go is kind of the because there's some bands there's some bands where they'll include members that never even recorded with the band. Some you know, depending on yeah. if they're media darlings or whatever. Yeah, it's something to do with the history of how many years and Blaze didn't qualify for them years. I think you'd have to ask someone that knows the rules and yeah. the regulations. But, yeah. um, you know, it, put it this way, I'm, I'm not stupid. I, I, I went on Facebook and social media saying for me to be, me personally, to be nominated is one of the biggest honours uh, of my career. Sure. Uh, now, thinking of, um, let me say, if the band may not, I didn't know Bruce had, said anything about the Hall of Fame. Someone told me that he had he had said a few things about the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what he said, but um, I know that he said something. Now, personally for me, I was blowing my own trumpet saying, please vote. Sure. Because this is a big honour for me. It means the world to me. Sure. But I'm not speaking for the band. You know, this is me personally. Sure, sure. Now, if the band... And the management don't fancy it, or it's not their scene if they're not interested, then so be it. You have to respect the band or the management's decision. Right. You know, I know for a fact, I've, I've watched the voting on my phone, and I see the voting, which is for the Tina Turner and the top one, who I don't know who that is, right. and the Food Fighters, the voting is quite mediocre. Now, I know for a fact that I can talk personally from me, not for Maiden, but the amount of fans in this world, not only South America, Brazil, not Chile, not, not just uh, the amount of fans in the, in the world, if they voted for Iron Maiden, they wouldn't be hundreds of thousands. That would be millions. Oh, yeah. And, and Maiden would walk it. They would walk it with, without a problem. But because they've stayed quiet, if it's not their scene, then you have to respect the management, respect the band, and say, good luck to you guys. And, it, and if they're not interested, then so be it. But for me, it is a big honour, you know, and, you know, that's what you have to go along with. You know, you respect that. Period. Sure, sure. And I personally think it would be, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about it because I've because of the way they've done things over the years. But I can definitely understand your position there. But I do think it would be really cool. And I've got a friend that keeps telling me, if this, if even if this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is kind of a, you know, not really a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but it, whatever it stands for, if you can just get Iron Maiden in there, their pictures, their images, their album artwork, whatever it goes along with it, maybe twenty five, thirty years from now someone's going to visit this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that's never heard of Iron Maiden, nothing at all about it, walk in there, see pictures of Iron Maiden, see album covers and whatever, and then they're going to go, maybe I should try this out. And 
for that, I definitely don't disagree. I think that would be a good thing to be in there. And I, and I know I've, I've read, I read an interview recently that you said that it, I think you said it was kind of your bucket list item to get back on stage one more time and play with those guys. Well, you know, people ask me that, you know, do you reckon you'll ever do it? And it's always been a bucket list, you know, to, to do. I grew up watching different musicians getting back up for one more song yeah. from Finn Lizzie to whoever, you know, and, um, you know, it's one of the things that's always going to be in the back of your mind, you know, just to do one more song before you actually pick it, you know, before yeah. you're, you're too old to get up the steps of the stage. You know? Right. And who knows? It's, it's never, there's no way you're going to be able to do it. Uh, their show at the moment, the legacy of the beast is such a great show. Yes. That, um, there, there's no room for anything to go on at the end or whatever. If the whole show is computerized, you work to a, a, a timetable and it's a fantastic show. So it's definitely not going to happen if, 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 even if it was thought about. So, you know, it's, it's something I have in the, in my bucket list that I'd like to tick off, but it, it may not be possible. I ho- I really hope that it does happen. Cause what, it's, uh, it's, it's out of my hands completely. So, yeah. Know. When I talked, when I talked to Blaze, I asked him because when I talked to, let's see, when I went and saw the Legacy of the Beast show, the opening band was one a band that has one of Steve's sons in it. Raven Knights, yeah. Right. And, and, and they were great. But I'm there and I was thinking to myself, you know what I would like to see on a show that's called The Legacy of the Beast? I would like to see Blaze Bailey's band opening. And I would like to see Blaze get to go on stage with Iron Maiden and, you know, maybe do a song. And the same with you. These guys that you're all still around, you all still are, you still have the, like you said, you still have the ability to walk up on the stage and you can still obviously play the songs. Yeah. I think that would be phenomenal. I, I hope that it does happen. And, and, and what someone said to me about it as well was the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They said, they said, I don't respect it, but if it, if that's what it took to get these guys back on stage with Dennis Stratton and get these guys back on stage with Paul Diano, I, I can't really see Paul being up there, but I mean, you've got a good relationship with Steve and I, yeah. I could certainly see them saying, yeah, come on up and we'll have four guys playing. I think that'd be, if yeah. a band could pull that <laughs> off, it's them. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, as I say, you have to respect their decision, and uh, yeah. I think you said them being them being very quiet about it. I think it tells you the story how they feel. So, you know, we have to respect that. Sure, sure, sure. Um, now let's see, because you now how long have you been you've been playing with Lionheart? I know you did an album right after Maiden with Lionheart, and then a bunch of years later, you had a, like a compilation come out, and. Then in 2017, you had an album, and then you had a brand new album that came out last year. Yeah. Which I'm assuming that when you started recording that album, COVID had not happened yet, so you weren't expecting. Yeah, well, what happened basically is that um, in in 80, we, we we had the songs, and but we didn't sign a deal with CBS until 1984. Um, we went to LA to do the album with Kevin Bean issued that REO Speedwagon. Okay. But in them days, you know, in 85 and 86, was um, 
big, big CBS, big talk about tours with, with you know, REO Speedwagon, Foreigner, Journey, Kansas. It never happened. We came back oh. to England. So, cut a long story short, the band, it got to around about, you know, 87, 88. Um, so, the band sort of like takes a little bit. We didn't sort of split up because we carried on writing songs together, but Rocky and Steve was working with Schenker, um, and I went into Praia Mantis. So while we were with Praia Mantis, um, I was still writing songs with Steve and Rocky from Lionheart. So basically, we've not split up, but it's just balling underneath, you know. Sure. Um, and uh, then Pony Canyon said, about, you still keep, keep in contact with the boys from Lionheart? I said, yeah, but it's only three of us. Have you got any other songs? And we put some new songs together, and then we had some old songs that were never used for the first album. So Pony Canyon loving the old demos and things. So we got all this collection, and it, that's why it was called, uh, uh, what was it, the Lost, uh, Lost yeah. Raiders of the Lost Archives. Right, right. So we got a group of you know songs together, and, they, we, and Steve remastered them and remixed them at his studio. And we give him that, but Steve was still doing his projects, and Rocky was still doing with Schenker, but we still kept in contact. And then um, when it come to the end in in uh, um, 2005, um, it was one of those cases where I started being very very busy all over Europe, South Africa, Bulgaria, uh, New Zealand, everywhere doing this maiden conventions where they would have three or four bands on and I would go on at the end with a maiden band. Yeah. And these bands are out of this world. They It was like closing your eyes and playing with the original lineup. Oh, man. And these guys, youngsters, they'd learn the songs backwards. They learned it upside down. There was nothing they didn't know about maiden. The vocalists were absolutely fantastic singing like Blaze or like Bruce. So yeah. I spent, you know, quite a few years, I still do now, apart from lockdown, um, all around Europe and everywhere. And uh, then all of a sudden I get a call saying about reforming Lionheart for a festival in Nottingham, which is your saying, was this 2016-17 saying. Um, we, did, we did this Rockingham Festival with Lee Small on vocals, and it was just, and Clive, Clive Edwards on drums. And it was like we had never been apart. And uh, it, all the vocal harmonies come back, all the harmony guitars, yeah. everything. So we're backstage at, at Rockingham with, with Dave Ling and Rob Evans, who are AOR, Kerrang, come classic rock journalists. We've known them all our lives. And they said, oh, you've got to record an album together. Because the one, the first one with Kevin Beamis wasn't, didn't come out the way we wanted it. Well, now Steve is a very, very well uh, respected producer, engineer, producer, and master in his studio in Germany. So we sat down and wrote Second Nature, as you can see here. Um, we wrote down a bunch of songs, and Lee Small is a fantastic uh, lyricist. And some of the lyrics he was coming up with. We got this album done really quickly. We did it in about six months, seven months. Steve mastered it, and Second Nature came out. So we're back with an album, but 
back with no management, no agency, nothing. Yeah. Um, so we don't know who to go to, where to go, where we're going to put the album. We couldn't do it ourselves. So King Records in Japan have, have always been our favourite. We've always got on with them. They wanted the album straight away. So we, Japan's stitched sun up. So the rest of Europe was, we went with this record company in, in Germany. They didn't do the best job they could have done. They let us down. And I, I think they let us down. Uh, didn't do it prop justice. Um, so that album came and went. And then we started working on this album, The Reality of Miracles. Mm-hmm. And um, the biggest problem we had um, was Clive was working on one project with Pete Way, God bless him. Steve was back with Schenker. Rocky was working with a couple of other bands. I was all over the place with the Maven conventions. Yeah. How are we going to record this album? But the songs were getting stronger and stronger. They were sounding really good. We were putting them down. When we were at home, we were putting them down, all the ideas on Cubase, on the laptop, Steve in the studio. But whenever he, he could get in the studio, he'd be working on line art stuff. But it was always put on hold, on hold, because... Schenker's touring. Sure. Clive's away. This is away. But but the minute the thing is, I can be away. It won't hurt. The album will still motor on with Steve in his studio. But the problem was Steve was the busiest out of all of us. So when he's not in the studio, the album's put on hold. Right. And this went through a year, and we were saying to one another, is this album ever going to get finished? In the meantime, we get interest from management. Um Flying Dolphin from Germany, they manage a lot of bands, Doro, and they want to manage Lionheart. They've got a record company. We're getting a lot of interest from different people. Steve's away. He's put on hold again. And then, to make matters worse, as it gets to 16, 2016, 17, whatever it was, 18, we have Brexit. So what happens now in Germany, Steve's in Germany, he needs to now become a German citizen. Otherwise, he can't stay in Germany. Hmm. So this album had so many setbacks, you would <laughs> not believe. Yeah. Um, up until it got to 2020. And Steve said, this album's never going to be fit, never going to be finished. <laughs> the reason being is 2020 is the 40-year anniversary of the new wave of British heavy metal. Right. It's the 40th anniversary, 40-year anniversary of the first Iron Maiden album. Right. I'm booked all over the world doing the Maiden conventions. Sure. All through 2020. So it gets to the end, 2019, the album's basically finished apart from a couple of songs need recording and the vocals, some guitar parts, so what happens? We get to the end of February, beginning of March, lockdown. I'm not saying anything, if anything good that would come out of this virus was that we couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. So Steve was self-isolating in the place where we wanted him to be, <laughs> in the studio. Lock the door and leave him there. Yeah. And that was it. And within March, April, May, within two months, that album was finished. That's crazy. <laughs> and, then, and then it came out in the 30th of July, 
uh, while we were in lockdown, it came out. It was all finished, mastered, everything. And I don't know if you've heard it, but we're very proud of it. I have heard it. I have heard it. Let me... We've only got a couple minutes left, but there was one song that I thought was interesting on there that was really, I don't know if it was out of place to me, but it's like a, it's a, it's a, like a, I don't know if it's a hymn, but it's a Christian, like Mary, did you know? Yeah. And uh, I was just, Uh, uh, yeah, but let me explain. Yeah. Two years ago, two Christmases ago. So this is before lockdown. Okay. We released Mary, did you know, as a Christmas single. Okay. Right? And it was to go out, Mary Did You Know, was to go out as a Christmas single um, for a charity. Okay. So when we come to record the the, uh, Reality of Miracles album, Mary Did You Know wasn't going on the the European album, but on the Japanese copy. Yeah. The bonus track. Sure, sure. Because the Japs always want a bonus track, <laughs> so we had that. But the other good thing about it, Steve, is that is that basically we had the reality of miracles finished. Yeah. So our record company says, "Look, this this Christmas coming, and we're still we're still like uh, we're, we're getting confused now. Um, Christmas just gone. Yeah. So the album comes out." 30th July, summer, lockdown. When it comes up towards Christmas, just gone, we get asked to do the reality of miracles, but not re-record it, but remix it. Gotcha. A different... Huh? Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can hear you, yeah. All right. Remix it because they wanted us... They wanted us to do it for a children's charity. And Mary, did you know, was going on the B-side. Ah, okay. So, or Reality and Miracles was going on the B-side. Now, we did this for the charity. It's called, um, oh, my brain. It's called uh, Little Havens Children's Hospice. Okay. And it's for children that are, are terminally ill. And we wanted to raise some money for this hospice. So if you go on YouTube and you put Lionheart, the reality of miracles, solstice mix, uh-huh. make sure that you put solstice. You will see the video we did for the charity okay. to try and raise money for the for the hospice. Cool. Well, so yeah. We are out of time right now. We are just about, I'm going to have to go to my last song here that you, that you chose. And just so anybody knows, Dennis chose these three songs to play. Yeah. I've got to say, Dennis, again, it is, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. These stories, the, just everything that you've shared has been really, really incredible. And I hope we can do it again sometime. No problem. No problem. I'm, you know, with the lockdown still going on, I'm not speaking to many people. So it's nice to come here and speak to you. Awesome. I really appreciate it again. So I'd like to thank uh, Tim Atkinson and every all the boys here at Ferry Cross Studios in Saffron Morden because without these guys here at the studio, I wouldn't be able to do this. You know, they don't mind me coming in here because I live on a farm. I don't have the internet on the farm. Right. Um, it's quite isolated, so I won't have it. So I'm allowed to come here to speak to you. So it's quite nice. Awesome. Awesome. Well, to play us out today, 
we are going to listen to the title track, the eponymous track from the first Iron Maiden album, Iron Maiden. Okay, people, there you have it. Was that not freaking awesome or what? Oh, my God. I'm still, <laughs> oh, man, I'm still just blown away that, that that happened and went as well as it did, that Dennis was as cool as he was. I, you never know what to expect from people. And, man, awesome, awesome. So once again, I have to thank Dennis for taking the time to come on and be willing to share about his life, answer all these random questions it was, like I said, incredibly awesome. A couple of other people that I also want to thank. Um, first off, my buddy Feckin. I had reached out to Dennis a while back with no luck. I hadn't heard anything back. And I just thought, well, maybe he's not the kind of guy that wants to talk a whole lot or whatever. And and then one day Feck asked me, he says, hey, uh, did you ever hear back from Dennis? And I said, no, I didn't. And he said, well, maybe try to reach out to Luis. And so I said, okay. So uh, I reached out to Luis, another person I need to thank, and he told me uh, the best way to get in touch with Dennis, which I did, and within probably 12 hours, we had contact, and we've been communicating now for probably a couple of months at this point to get this all to happen. I knew the radio show was going to start, and I wanted to make sure, I really wanted to be able to talk to him there. I thought it'd be really awesome. Um, Another huge thank you that I owe is to Nesbitt, and again to Luis. Uh, when I was putting my questions together and and, and researching and, and doing things like that, they were both a huge help, and I really sincerely appreciate it. Thank you to all of you, but more so even especially to Dennis because, I mean, hey, dude played an Iron Maiden. <laughs> and uh, great harmonies, great guitar. I mean, a lot to say there, but either way. So on behalf of myself, on behalf of Dennis Stratton, Luis, Feckin, and Nesbitt from Iron Maiden, from Eddie, and from the boys. in life are bad they can really make you mad other things just make you swear and curse when you're chewing on life's gristle that grumble give a whistle 
This'll help things turn out for the best And Always look on the bright side of life Always look on the light side of life If life seems jolly rotten There's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps Don't be silly chumps Just purse your lips and whistle That's the thing Always look on the bright side of life It's quite absurd And death's the final word You must always face the curtain with a bow Forget about your scene Give the audience a grin Enjoy it, it's your last chance anyhow So always look on the bright side of life